here and we will turn our attention to the word of the Lord here very briefly. But I wanted to kind of give us a summary, bring us back up to, to where we are. Uh, we started this sermon series essentially in Genesis, but the thrust of the series is in Exodus, the story of the people of Israel being brought out of slavery. But you have to find out how they went into slavery before you can find out how they were brought out of slavery. So we looked at the story of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob is the one who becomes Israel and has all those sons. But he he very sinfully has a very favorite son. And there's dissension that is created in those brothers. Those brothers sell Joseph, the so-called favorite brother, off into slavery, and then he is falsely accused and thrown in jail, and then he is elevated to being second in command, only under Pharaoh in all of Egypt. And there's a famine that comes upon the land, but God gave Pharaoh a dream, and God gave Joseph the interpretation of that dream, and because of Joseph, and because of the people of Israel, all of Egypt, and then the entire world is spared from death, In this famine, because Joseph was instructed by God, given godly wisdom to set aside the grain. And so then all the world came to Egypt to buy food and the world was saved through God's provision. And so then we fast forward and and over the course of 400 years, being sinful humanity, the, the people forgot of the goodness of God. They forgot about what God had done through Joseph specifically. They forgot that the people living amongst them in Egypt were God's chosen people. And so there arose a Pharaoh who did not know. There arose a Pharaoh who did not remember. And the Israelite people began to be oppressed and oppressed very severely. And there were strict things that Pharaoh did out of fear to try and kill these children. There were evil things that Pharaoh did, but God's judgment and his deliverance is coming. It is on the way. And one of the most poignant things that Jake pointed out to us last week as we looked at the tail end of chapter 2 is that God heard those prayers. God saw His people and God knew. Today as we look at our passage for this morning, we're going to see a lot of those same themes, a lot of those same things, even those same words mentioned. And now I've got to warn you a little bit before we get into this sermon. There are things that we have to wrestle with that are more linguistic, okay? And I'm a language nerd, all right? I really enjoy language. I enjoy diving into language. Words are important. Now, I also don't know everything. Uh, last week we had a very a funny occurrence because I was convinced that what the graduates do when they come in is precess, P-R-E-C-E-S-S. But, you know, I was thinking, see, process is like a process. That's that's like something that you do multiple steps in a thing. But it, it turns out um, our, our minister of worship, our pastor, our, our, our great leader who takes us before the throne, Jason, uh, in a very private setting, in a very humble way, um, pointed out that if I Google precess, I might find that it's a, a very different word talking about some weird geological stuff has absolutely nothing to do with graduates. So if you just remember a random thing that somebody told you one time and you think, oh, yeah, precess, everybody else has got it wrong. It's precess, not process. It's not process in. They precess in. You might be wrong. But I promise this morning I've done my homework. OK, so when we talk about these linguistic things, when we talk about these grammar centered things, we're on point, okay? This is, this is what the best and brightest of all Christian scholarship have collected and made readily available for us to research, all right? So, 
It will be a little bit thick at a point, but I'm just going to ask you and encourage to bear with me because names and grammar and language are very important. The words that we say, the names that we have, have meaning. And there's significance to that, especially in God's own name. What He says that He will be called by how we will know Him. So we're going to spend time looking at that this morning. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus once again. It's right there after Genesis. Start off at the very beginning of your Bible. You get to Genesis and then move to Exodus. We're in chapter 3. We will be reading verses 1 through 15. As Jake said previously when we read from John and he read for us so well, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. If you don't have one, you can use one. If you don't have one at home, take one. That is our gift to you. You can keep it. We have more. We will put more in there. Those are sterilized. I promise it. There's no COVID on any of the Bibles. All right. And even if there is, it's probably still worth it to take one home with you, but they're sterilized. It's good. Don't worry about it. But if you need a Bible, you can take one. All right. Now it is our tradition, just as Jake exemplified for us. We usually stand. I know we've already stood and and been up and down, but if you're physically able, would you please stand once again out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word? I will read for us and once We end in chapter 15. I will say this is the word of the Lord. And just as Jake did, I encourage you to respond with thanks be to God. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this very mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we come to this particular passage this morning, the book of Exodus is broken down very beautifully. And so what we've seen leading up to this point is kind of the setting Here's the setting in which everything takes place. Here's what Egypt looks like. Here's what the land of Midian looks like. Here's what Moses has been through. We've talked about how Moses' life is very neatly broken up into about three different segments. From birth to 40 years old, he spends time in Egypt. From 40 to 80, he spends time in this land of Midian. And from 80 to about 120 is the time of going and bringing the people out of Egypt by God's power, by God's grace, and then leading them through the wilderness and up to the Jordan River. So where we are right now, now that we know the setting and the backdrop, now we begin to meet the leadership of the people. We're going to spend the next several chapters, from chapter 3 through chapter 6, the focus is going to be on the leadership of the people, who God has anointed and set aside to lead them out. And then it moves on into the signs, and then it moves into the journey portion at the end of the book of Exodus. And so Moses has run away. He killed somebody and hid them in the sand and tried to run and hide from his sin because his sin was found out. And much like Jake shared with us last week, we cannot hide from our sins. Our sins will find us out. And so Moses kills a man. We're told that he murders this man, even though he was in the midst of, of oppressing the Israelites, we're still told that this was an act of murder. And so Moses murders this man, hides him in the dust, but of course it becomes known. And so rather than owning up to his sin, rather than dealing with it or confronting it, he takes a natural path that many, many of, of, of us would normally take. He runs and hides and goes off and finds some lovely young ladies at a well and, and waters their camels, runs off some other people, and he ends up in the house of Ruel or Jethro. It's, it's the same. He's known by both names. And so now he's tending Jethro's flocks. He is set to be Jethro's heir. He's going to inherit this land and, and have a great life. It's like if you've constructed your own home and worked with a contractor, and then this is, this is the home that is very precious and special to you, and it's going to last, hopefully, for generations in your family. That's the kind of roots that Moses has taken up and placed here in the land of Midian with this family. But as he's watching the flock, he's at this mountain, Mount Horeb. In other places in Scripture, it's called Mount Sinai. It's, it's known by many names, but at this particular point, it's Mount Horeb. And so while Moses is there, he notices something very strange. There is an enormous flame on a bush. Now, I think a lot of times when we think this, or maybe when I was a kid, I thought about a shrub. You know, like a very small bush. I wasn't thinking about like an enormous bush of, of a plant, like a, a, a huge thing. This is probably something that catches Moses' eye. And so it's probably something very significant. And I would even venture to say the fact that it's not being consumed by the flame, there may not have been much smoke rising from it. 
But this flame is the first time this is going to show up in Exodus. And it's going to be a symbol of God's presence everywhere else that we go in the book of Exodus. If you've been through this book before, you'll even remember that God stopped the armies of Pharaoh with a pillar of fire. And then he began to lead the people of Israel through the wilderness by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. This is a symbol of God's presence. After they built the temple, after Solomon has this incredible temple constructed for the Lord, for worship of the one true and living God, fire descends on that temple as a symbol of God's presence in the holy of holies. So this is an, an, a foreshadowing for us, a symbol of what we will see, not just here, but through the rest of Scripture, that God appears and speaks to Moses through the fire. And so Moses, very humbly, as, as we read, takes off his shoes at the instruction of the angel of the Lord. It's a very strange phrase that shows up all the time in the Old Testament, But if you'll notice, we're first saying the angel of the Lord in verse two. But by the time you get down to verse four, the reference is the Lord and God. So this angel of the Lord is is a mysterious figure. But by whatever means possible, this is the Lord himself. Whether this is the angel of the Lord acting as a messenger and somehow the Lord presence descends upon that angel and and speaks, or if this is somehow a a pre-incarnate form of Christ, or if this is the Holy Spirit before the, the events of Pentecost, in some way, this is the Lord God Himself. So don't just think that this is an angel. That is a very common phrase that God Himself is at work and moving, not just one of His messengers. That's what we see when we hit verses 4 and 5. And God is holy. One of the biggest things we can take away from this is that in that flame, in the presence of that flame, in the presence of the voice of God, God is holy. The bush is not holy in and of itself. The ground on which Moses stands is not holy because the ground is holy. It is the presence of God that makes those things holy. It's the same with you and I. Our lives in and of themselves are not holy. In our sinful nature, in our normal, natural state of rebellion against God, we are not holy. But God's presence being inside of us, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ as the only way and the only truth and the only life, then God's very presence comes to dwell in us. We're told in the book of Ephesians, it is a seal upon our hearts. He, the Holy Spirit, is a seal upon us that we have been saved. And because that Holy Spirit, because that presence is in us, we begin to become holy. But let us not be confused and think that any one thing is holy or any one creation or any one space or any one person is holy. God is holy. And God's presence is what makes other things holy. Holy. So that's why Moses has to take off his shoes because he is on holy ground. And then God introduces himself to Moses. And this is tying back to the identity that that Jake spoke about last week. Moses knew who he really was. Even as he was being raised as a prince in Egypt, he knew that the Egyptians were not his people, but the Israelites were his people. And God reaffirms that right here and right now when he says, I am the God of your father. Your forefathers, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is your family lineage that being a part of Abraham's 
family is what connects you to me, Moses, not the Egyptians. And it's a distinguishing factor of who God is. And God identifies Moses with himself, just as Moses already did in the land of Egypt. God reaffirms this. And then in in verses 7 through 9, God states clearly and repetitively to Moses that none of the affliction, none of the oppression, none of the hardship, none of the slavery, none of the work, none of the mistreatment, none of the injustice, nothing that has happened to His people in Egypt has been overlooked by God. And just as we were reminded last week, I want to remind you this week that God does not overlook our anguish. He does not overlook our suffering. He does not overlook our suffering and and persecution and oppression. When COVID-19 is running crazy around the world and people are losing jobs and people are getting sick and governments are overstepping and understepping and every which way stepping and everything is topsy-turvy, you can't make plans for next week, much less tomorrow, seems like. God sees, God knows, God remembers He sees the affliction of His people and God is never caught off guard. He's never surprised. When the scans come back and the doctor says, well, it's cancer, and the doctor thought for sure there's no way this was cancer, and they biopsied and they sent it off, the doctor says, look, you've got nothing to worry about. There's no way that this is cancer. And then it comes back and the doctor is absolutely dumbfounded, flabbergasted at the fact that he was wrong or she was wrong about this diagnosis. That never happens to God. Never. If your boss fires you, God knew it was coming. If you get a new job, God probably orchestrated it. Maybe God orchestrated you getting fired to preserve you and save you from something that was happening down the road. God is active in our lives and God is there for us. And He never forgets us or looks over us or sees past us. Do not forget that God is there for you and with you. So then Moses asks a, a, a very, very humble question. But, but God, who am I? Who, who am I to go for you? I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm a murderer. I'm a shepherd. I got nothing. I don't even live in the land of Egypt anymore. If they know my history, I won't be welcomed in their presence. Who am I to go for you? And look at God's response. Look at God's response. God says, It doesn't matter who you are. What matters is I will be with you. Folks, if we can't take that to heart this morning, it doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter what you did in the past. There is forgiveness and redemption available in Jesus Christ. And what matters is if God is with you. If God is not with you, you are hopeless. If God is not with you, then you are helpless. If God is not with you, then you are lost. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, have faith in Him, a faith that changes who we are and causes us to begin to follow after Him, and then God is then with us and is making us holy, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter, Moses, that you used to be a prince. It doesn't matter that they might not let you into their presence. It doesn't matter all these things that you're worried about. Moses, remember, I'm going to be there. And the beauty is that ties in to what Moses' next question is. It's not just that God says, I am. God says, I will be, and I will be with you. 
Wherever you go there in Egypt, whatever happens, whatever comes your way, I will be with you. It's a promise there right from the outset. And so Moses then asks a very logical question. It's a very, very good question. Verse 13, so what, what's your name? I can go in, I can be like, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has sent me to free you from Egypt. And the people might go, well, what's his name? What do I tell him? Have you ever been in this situation? Man, I know somebody, all right? I know this mechanic, and he can fix your car better than any mechanic in the world. You just, you gotta get in touch with him. He's a great guy. He's a wonderful mechanic. Runs a business. It's over there, um, down that road, you know, by that place, uh, with, with those people. Oh, okay, all right. I maybe got an idea what you're talking about. What, what's the guy's name? Um, it's, uh, oh, you know, that guy. You know, he's a good with cars. Just go see him. It doesn't have a lot of credence when you don't even know the person's name. I know a great surgeon. Don't worry about it. He cuts people up and does great, sews them back up. Awesome guy. He's wonderful. I highly recommend him. All right, what's his name? I'll look him up. Uh, he's, uh, he sits over there most of the time. Um, glasses. He, I can describe him. I, just, I don't have his name. I don't know. I don't know. I know a great lawyer, but I don't know his name. Names are very significant. Are you going to trust somebody that recommends any of those services or any other example you think of in your mind and says, you can really trust this person? I just, I, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not sure who they are. I mean, they've done good work, but I, just, I don't know who they are. I don't know what they call themselves, but I, I, I can tell you a little bit about them. Moses asks for God's name so that he doesn't stammer and, and yammer up in front of all of the Israelites of uh, 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 Abraham and, uh, uh, you know, Isaac. And then, uh, and then Jacob and, and you know, Joseph and the people were, that's, that God, that's, that's who I'm, I'm here. You remember, I'm Moses and that was God. Uh, I don't know. They're already fishy. They, when we get there, that we're going to see. They're already suspicious of Moses in the first place. Moses needs to know the name. And so we get into verse 14. One of the most powerful statements in all of scripture that will ring throughout the rest of the Bible. I am who I am. I am who I am. Man, was that the answer Moses was looking for or what? <laughs> I mean, John, Jason, Jacob, I- I- anything. Just Kevin, give me anything, man. I, just a name. I'm like, and God says, I am who I am. <laughs> uh, it's great. I, I mean, obviously you exist because you're there in the bush and you're talking to me. You are who you are. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. That's that's what I tell him. And, and then he, he continues. But in this name, as he begins to speak about this, all of this name that is given is a mutation of the verb to be. So that's where we get I am. It's a, it's a state of being verb, right? To be. God says, I am who I am. I am has sent them. I will be. I was. And I'm never going anywhere. He is the existent one. There is so much significance to this name because names, especially during the Old Testament ancient times, had intense significance. Now it's just a label. All right. We just call Brock Brock because it's his name. He's Brock. But Brock doesn't really mean a whole lot to any of us other than it represents this person right here who's graciously been running the camera for the last like nine weeks and doing a wonderful job for us. But it's not man who runs camera. All right. 
But that was a valid name, other than the fact that cameras didn't exist. Okay, work with me here just a little bit, all right? But Brock could be technological man. He knows everything about technology. And he was given this name at birth, and it was prophesied that there would be a day when Brock Wallace would be the supreme networking man of Power South. And all of the communications that needed to be done when the Wi-Fi was down, they would call technology man, man who is good with technology. That's, that's a very, like... Valid name in the Old Testament. I know we, we say things like Israel and Jacob. Jacob meant deceiver. When you're reading the Old Testament, don't just label Jacob. He was a heel grabber. That's, that's the very literal translation. So he went around his whole life being called heel grabber. Not, not just Jacob, heel grabber. There's a, there's a prophet, Hosea, who has a child, and it's a prophetic child, and God says, I want you to name this child, you are not my people, and I am not your God. So that poor kid had to go his whole life being called, you are not my people, I am not your God. You are not my people, I am not your God. I told you to clean your room. You are not my people, I am not your God. You were supposed to be home at 11, and it is clearly 11.30. You are not my people, and I am not your God. I am mad at you. Maybe they shortened it up somehow. I don't know. Maybe it was like you said the whole phrase. When, when, you know, they were in trouble and it was just shortened down to you're not or something. But names had this significance and it, it signified either something prophetic of the Lord or something that was prophesied over your life. And God says, I am the self-existent one. By saying I am, it means that all the others are not. You understand that God is the only one who is. All the others are not. He is the self-existent one and is not dependent on anything else for his existence. When he says, I am, it means nothing made me to be who I am. I just am. I don't depend on anything. I am. I was. I will be. I am. And all of this that he is saying in these verses are permutations of that verb to be that is in Hebrew. It also means that God is the creator and sustainer of all things that exists, that exist because he is. There are other things that are. Does that make sense? That because God is, I am, then you are without the I am. There is not anything else. He's the only self-existent one. And I know you may be thinking that I'm reaching in this, but that's why God says it the way that he says it. He leaves it so short and so poignant because he says, I am. And that's what you need to know. Nothing pre-existed me. Nothing is independent of me. Everything depends on me because I am. And then other meanings that we find in this is that God is the same. Because I am, we can count that he is who he is always. It's not just I am who I am today. I am who I am right now. God says I am who I am. That very phrasing, I am who I am, communicates to us that God's going to be who God is going to be. God is who He is and is unchanging in His character and His nature. There are things about God that we can trust. There are things about God that we can know. Even when we're confused, we know that He is and we know what He will be. And so we know that His heart is the same. His character and His nature are the same. We have attestations to this throughout the rest of Scripture. Look with me at a few other verses. God describes Himself in the Psalms. In Psalm 86, 
He says this, this is all outworkings of his name. This is all outworkings of what it means to be the I am. He says, but you, O Lord, the psalmist writing, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 103 repeats that again. It's quoted over and over. I've only picked two out of the hundreds throughout the Bible where God's character and nature gleaned from the fact that He says He is the I Am. These are things that it means that the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But it also means that His character and His nature never change. He was who He was. He is who He is. He will be who He will be. Look with me at Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Because His character and His nature do not change, He is a God who is slow to anger, merciful and gracious. Therefore, the, the next half of that verse, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Because we, just like the children of Jacob, ought to be consumed. But God's character and nature are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, willing to forgive those who will repent. That's the lens through which we can interpret everything about how God interacts with us. Slow to anger, merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Therefore, we are not consumed. There is mercy to be found for those who would repent and turn to the Lord. His character and His nature do not change. I am who I am. I was who I was. I will be who I will be. I am and this is who I am. Lastly, it's reiterated in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. This is of Jesus Himself. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, the very Son, the very essence, the same essence of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Son came and died. And it says in the Bible, in the Revelation, that He was slain from the very foundations of the earth. Jesus Christ, before ever the world was created, was already slain. He already was who He was going to be, is who He is, and will be who He will be. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. All of this ties into this name that God reveals to Moses. And not only is it that, but it's, it's what Jesus says in John chapter 8. When we read verse 59, when Jake read that for us, it says that all the scribes, all the Pharisees, everybody there knelt down, picked up a stone, and was ready to throw it and kill Jesus. And he, he slipped through the midst. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying when He said, Before Abraham was, I am. He used the same wording, the same phrase that is used in Exodus 3. Jesus is claiming directly to be God. He is claiming to be the I am who I am. When He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew it. You know how we know they knew it? Because they thought it was blasphemy and they tried to stone Him to death. They understood immediately that He was claiming to be God because of this particular name. Now look, there's a lot of things that we can say about God. There are names in the Old Testament for God that are generic. You know, we have this word God, but we use the same word God if we're talking about Greek gods in ancient mythology. It's just with a little g, right? Well, all throughout Scripture, there's a word like that that's Elohim. Elohim is a Hebrew word that is referring to God, but it could also refer to false gods. 
It could also refer to Ashtoreth or Molech or Baal or one of these other false gods. It's just the generic term for God. And maybe in your Bible, you'll notice when you when you hit verse 14 and 15, it may say the Lord and it has a capital L and then smaller, but capital O-R-D. So it's Lord in all caps. The reason that that's there is because the people, the scribes who transmitted this to us had such respect for the name of the Lord, which is represented in English letters. These are just the English letters that look like the Hebrew letters that represent the Hebrew letters. Y-H-W-H. Now, how to pronounce that, how to say that, what vowels go with that, all sorts of opinions out there. All sorts of opinions out there. They would do everything in their power not to say this name sheerly out of respect for the weight of this name. All of this meaning that we've been talking about that's been preached thus far in this sermon was carried in that name to the point that they would take the parchment and they would cut out that little section and pull it out. They would take the vowel sounds from the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai, or the Hebrew word for Elohim, and apply it to YHWH. Now, today, most modern scholars think that the closest accurate name we have to the name of the Lord is probably something like Yahweh. Through the years, we've said things like Jehovah. Jehovah is translated, transliterated from Hebrew to Latin to German to English. So in German, the J makes a Y sound. The W makes a V sound. So we're saying the English letters without the German sounds. So really, Jehovah's kind of off the mark just a little bit. All right, You see where it developed over time, but there's nothing wrong with saying Jehovah. When you say Jehovah, the Lord knows you're talking to Him. If you say that God is Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides, are you saying it exactly like the Hebrews said it? No. Does the Lord know exactly who you're talking to and what you mean? Yes. Is it worth fighting over whether we say Jehovah or Yahweh? No. But there was such respect for the name of God that they would cut the name out and just say the Lord. They would cut the name out and you would only see in the Greek translations kurios, which is which is the word for Lord. And so they they follow that tradition in many of our texts and write Lord in all capital letters. So any time that you're reading your Bible, Old Testament or New, and you see the phrase the Lord and it's in all caps with some small capital letters, know exactly that that is Y-H-W-H. Yahweh, Jehovah, Yehovah. There's all sorts of permutations of it. But no, that's not just God. That's not just Lord. That's the actual name that is spoken here to Moses. And sometimes that makes a huge difference When we are reading Scripture, there's nothing wrong with us using the generic term God or the generic term Lord. But Lord could refer to many things. God could refer to many things. In Scripture, there are times where they took extra care to say, I am. This is the word of the I am. When prophets showed up to speak, they said, thus says the I am. And not just I am, but I am who I am. One of the most important things about what Moses is told right here is that God says, and you can translate this who a lot of different ways. I am that I am. I I am that which I am. I am who I am is a very good translation. One thing that is not translated 
and is never translated. Shows up in nobody's Bible. God does not say right here, I am who you want me to be. I am who Brenda wants me to be. I'm only who David wants me to be. That's not, that's not who God is. The last thing, the fourth thing about this name is that God's dependence is on nothing and no one. God is not responsible to us for his existence. God does not report back to us. If we think God has done something that is unfair, God is not responsible for being who we want him to be. If we want to look at God and go, I can't believe you allowed such and such. I can't believe you directed my life to so and so. I can't believe that this and this and this happened. Lord, how could you allow such wars? Why would you put the tree in the garden? Why would you do these things? Where is all this coming from, Lord? I don't understand you and I will not serve you because I cannot serve a God who does this and this. Who commands the Israelites to do away with all of the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Hivites and the Hittites and the Parasites and all of those people. I could never worship a God who would cast judgment like that, who would be filled with wrath like that. God is filled with mercy, but there is wrath. And the Bible just tells us this is who he is. Take it or leave it. Like it or not, this is God. God's not responsible to me to be who Nathan wants him to be. God's not responsible to you to be who you want him to be. Our responsibility is to know who God is. And fall in line with Him. And conform ourselves to His will. To His standard. He's the one who gave us a sense of reason and morality in the first place. We have no right. We have no standing. To turn and look at Him and go, how could you? How dare you? Because God is who He is. Later in Exodus, we'll see him say this to Moses, and it's repeated by Paul in Romans. God says he'll have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. Folks, sometimes that's tough for us to grapple with. I've known people in my life who have said, I I believe those things that you say, but I just can't bring myself to fall in line with that God. I just can't worship or follow a God like that. And I've, I've had to as lovingly as I can say back, I'm so sorry, but this is who God is. From the very beginning of Exodus, this is who God tells us and tells Moses who he is. He says, I am. And he says, I am who I am. But the beauty of it is that just like we've said through all of this sermon, if we know Psalm 86 and Psalm 103 and Exodus 34 and all of these places where the Bible tells us over and over again that the I am is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, merciful and gracious. As he tells us in the book of Peter that he he desires that none should perish. We can trust what God does because we know who God is. Even when it doesn't make sense to me, and even when it doesn't make sense to you, We can take comfort that it's a good thing that God didn't say, I am who you want me to be. He said, I am who I am. And let me tell you, the I am is a good and merciful and gracious and patient God who is long-suffering, who desires that none should perish, who's willing to work with us even though we're just as bad, if not worse, than Israel. We stumble and we rebel and we turn away. Our hearts are prone to wander. 
And yet He patiently waits and offers forgiveness and offers redemption for those of us who would trust in Him and repent and turn and follow Him. doesn't mean we'll be perfect. But because He's slow to anger and because He's abounding in steadfast love, even when we have faith in Him, even when we believe every word that's written in here and we still mess up, He's still there to restore us in gentleness and in kindness. Sometime with tough love that we need. Sometime with discipline that I need. But even when He disciplines me, I can trust the discipline of His hand because I know the character of His heart. Because He's told me who He is. And that won't ever change. We serve a God who, when I draw my last breath, whenever that is, I don't have to worry about in the moments between when I draw my last breath and I'm there before Him that He changes His mind and says, hey, you know what? I'm just going to be done with everybody. (laughs) I'm just going to wipe all these humans out and start over. I'm just tired of dealing with them. We can know. Because He told us, I don't change. My character and my nature stays steadfast. And that's a good thing for you, O children of Jacob. And I would submit to all of us this morning that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we are children of Abraham. We are children of Jacob. So when the Lord says in Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He's talking to me. I deserve to be consumed. I'm a child of Jacob. And so are you if you believe in Jesus. But because of God's mercy, we are not consumed. Now, that mercy is only available if you will trust in Jesus and follow Him. Folks, maybe this morning you've been in a place where you've been in that attitude of, God, who gives you the right? God, why would you do this? How dare you, Lord? Maybe you've been in that place where you just can't bring yourself to trust in a God who would do the things that are in the Bible. But I, I would encourage you this morning, Draw near to the Lord, and He will draw near to you. If we repent, His arms are open wide for all who would repent. And repentance can be a one-time thing where we realize and we're born again, but repentance can also be a daily thing. And so this morning, I, I encourage you to search your own heart. No matter where you are, where you're tuning in from or here in person, search your heart. See if this morning you and I don't need to once again go to the I am and say, God, thank you that you are who you are. You are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Would you forgive me once again? Would you cause me to turn to you and follow you? Let's search our hearts and follow the Savior this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank You that that You are abounding in steadfast love. That You are merciful and gracious. God, that when we sinned, when we rebelled, we deserved Your divine judgment, Your wrath. We deserve to be eradicated from all of existence by the only One who truly is the source of existence. But in Your grace, in Your mercy, in Your love, You decided to offer forgiveness, to make a way for redemption at the expense of your only son. 
When we could not get to You, Lord, You came to us. Father, thank You for Your love and for Your mercy. God, help us to know who You are. To believe in who You are. To trust that You are good. And that Your mercy endures forever. Lord, if there's anybody at home or watching on their phone or or here in the congregation, wherever they may be, Lord, anybody who has not trusted in You, anybody who has not realized who You are and what You've done, would You draw them into Your presence today? Would You not allow them to walk away from this service before they decide they want to be children of the one and only great I Am? Father, would you move amongst us and work in our midst? We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to you, God, our Father in heaven. Amen.